Hello, my name is Dan Thoreau, and this is the Space Biff Space Cast. Today we are joined by a game designer whose most recent game I personally think is exceptional. Uh, this is Jeff Warnender, designer of the Acts of the Evangelists. Hello, Jeff. Hey, Dan. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So, yeah. so you're here today because uh, you have designed a game, and I've played this game probably six times now. Um, this is the Acts of the Evangelists, which I will confess, Jeff, and I hope you don't hold it against me, I was a little hesitant to agree to play. Okay, fair enough. Um, and the reason is, um, so as you may know, uh, locally we have SaltCon, and I go to SaltCon, and often there are game designers who are showing off. Um, you know, they're, they're trying to get published. Yep. Every year we, we have a Christian game designer who goes, and he has a different game, and I, I, I've played a number of uh, these games, and they're, they're usually um, they're better Christianity than games. Sure. And so I had that hesitation, you know, even though I knew that you would design games and I'd played one of your games previously, I just didn't know what to expect. Yeah, I think that's, you know, that's very much uh, in keeping with. So I play tested this game with a lot of different people, most of whom were non-Christians and nearly all of whom afterwards said. That was not what I was expecting. So <laughs> it suggests that your expectation was a common one, I think. What do you think uh, is the expectation? I think that people think any game, any game about, well, maybe not about any religion, but certainly about Christianity is going to be a sermon in a box. It's going to beat you over the head with religious dogma. And people just don't want to hear that. And they don't really want to experience that in game form. I, I don't think that's an entirely fair default position because I think there have been uh, some games that have, you know, really shown that there are, th this is a space in which some interesting stuff can come about. Um, but there haven't been many such games. So I understand why people would have some trepidation. Yeah. You know, two, two recent surprises that I mentioned in my review uh, of your game would be Amabel Holland's Nicaea and Ben Madison's The Mission, both of which are very uh, devotional games. Both have religious thoughts on their mind. They're both they're both designed by Christians, but I think they're both actually quite good as games. Yeah. Uh, have you played either of those? I haven't had a chance to yet, and and I haven't played a lot of the other ones that I, I've heard good things about. A game called Commissioned. Uh, there's like Wisdom of Solomon, I think it's called. Uh, just a number of different games that I've been I've been hearing about and hearing good things about. So, hope I'll get a chance to try some of them at some point. My understanding is that you are also a Christian. I am. If you don't mind me asking, what tradition do you hail from? So I grew up as a sort of Christmas and Easter Christian. Uh, the church closest to our house was Dutch Reformed. So we were Dutch Reformed. But, um, you know, I, I think at the time that I really started thinking intellectually about faith and what do I actually um you know, what do I actually think? Where do I begin and where does my upbringing or, or whatever end? Um, I, I think I've gravitated more toward a um, sort of mere Christianity type of faith, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, we have attended, so my wife is also a Christian. She grew up as a pastor's daughter in a small Pentecostal church. So 
Um, when we were first married, we moved to a new city and went to a Pentecostal church. It was the best time of our life. Then we moved back to the area we grew up in, in upstate New York. Um, we've been in a um, Lutheran church for a number of years, then a small community church for a number of years. And we've been very happy and, and, and um, you know, in all of those settings. So, um, yeah, I would say that in that sense, I think that's the, the closest, you know, Lewis's book, I think, is the, the closest way to express, um, you know, what I myself ad- adhere to, I guess. Would you characterize yourself as non-denominational? Yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. Right. Yes. And it's not even that we object to any particular denomination as that we're not in, I and, you know, we are not so invested in any particular denomination that we are um, going to say we will only go to this church or this kind of church and and no other. I, I think that's just, that's too limiting. It's impractical. Um, you know, is it non-biblical? Maybe a little, I don't know, but yeah. <laughs> Sure. <laughs> so as a as a Christian, when you set out to make this this game that, you know, uh, like I said, I had this bias against uh, Christian designed games, perhaps wrongly. W- was there a tension that you felt between, you know, here you have these two facets of your identity. You're a Christian. You're obviously a professional game designer. Uh, did you find yourself making concessions even at the theoretical stage? Um, I don't think so. And, and I think the reason I, I think we're going to probably get to this as, as we go here, but, you know, kind of this game, I'll give you the, the whirlwind tour of the game's backstory. Um, sure. In about 2004 or so, um, I had been designing games for a couple of years and I said, I really know what I'm doing now, which is total nonsense. But anyway, I was, I'm going to take <laughs> on, take on a couple of really ambitious projects. So I'm going to make Sands of Time and, uh, work on a, a, a Civ game, and I'm going to work on a game about uh, Jesus and the disciples. And it had one kind of cool idea that one of us is Judas and can end the game um, by taking the payout from the Pharisees track, which our actions in turn, you know, cause to move up. So the more angry make the Pharisees, the more tempting uh, betrayal comes for Judas. And it's, you know, it was a nice little traitor mechanic before that was a common thing. Anyway, mm-hmm. cute, cute little game. I, I liked it. Um, and then I thought, well, what comes after that? Well, maybe we should make an Acts era game, Acts of the Apostles, um, early church stuff. And if we have two games, we've got to have a third. So what's the third going to be? I don't know. And that's kind of where it sat for a lot of years. Um, and then in, I don't know, 2012, 13, 14, something like that, um, I read Richard Baucom's book, which was about, you know, he argues that the um, the gospel texts uh, show some evidence of eyewitness testimony. And I was like, that's very interesting. And then I read Richard Burridge's book, which says the gospels are in the genre of Greco-Roman biography, like the lives of the great Roman and Greek statesmen and whatnot. I was like, well, that's very interesting. And and my game design mind, not instantly, but <laughs> at some point turned on and said, ah, here are two things that we can put together and put players in tension. Um, we have on the one hand, I'm trying to interview eyewitnesses. Time is passing. They're dying off. We've got to get their stories. But then on the other hand, I'm trying to write these literary accounts that have some sophistication, that have some literary devices and that sort of thing. So that could be, that's the basis for a game. 
um, and then reducing it to an actual playable set of mechanics took you know took some more thought or whatever. But that was that was really how the game came about. Was I was you know sort of reading some scholarly books and um, you know just saw a set of game mechanics kind of fall out of them. Since most of our listeners will not know much about the acts of the evangelists. You're talking about systems and game systems falling out of uh, this, this, these thoughts that you were having. Could you describe the acts of the evangelists for our listeners? What, what can they expect when they open this box and sit down to play? Yes. So uh, evangelists is a action point allowance game, we would say mechanically. Each turn you're given three action points. Um, and you can allocate these to four different kinds of actions, which include traveling to a different city, um, collecting the, so, well, let, okay, let's back up for a second. The stage for our drama is the Roman empire. And this game takes place somewhere in the, um, unspecified, uh, but you know, 30 to 70 years after, uh, Jesus, uh, is crucified in about 30 AD or so historians think. So in that time, um, the Jesus movement has spread to different cities of the Roman Empire, and uh, Jesus communities are present in a bunch of different places. Okay, so the game takes place um, in the Roman Empire, in these cities, and so the actions you're going to take are you're going to travel to different cities, you're going to um, look at tradition cards, which represent stories that a Jesus community in that city has preserved, um, you're going to, some of the eyewitnesses are still, uh, to those events are alive. And so you may interview them to ask them, Hey, this transfiguration thing, you were there for that. Tell me about that. Um, so that's one of the ways you're going to get points. And then there's an action called rearrange because, uh, this is the ancient world. Writing materials are expensive. And so at the start of the game, your book is only three pages long. Um, and it uses poker cards for the pages and, mini cards for the story. So you're going to physically place a story onto a page. You're writing it onto the page. But sometimes the way you've written things isn't the order you want them to be in. So you'll use this rearrange to move things around. So that is the basic gist of what you do. You have these action points that you're using to um, do all of these four things to try and make the best gospel, whatever that means. Now, before we get into the particulars, I feel like one of the things that sticks out about this design is that if it's it's very much an independent production um for example it's uh it's printed on fabric that you had a seamstress cut out is that correct that's right yeah the, there's a company that will do custom fabric printing and then yeah i had a local seamstress cut the boards out for me and so yeah it was uh you know it's, it's interesting when you're self-publishing you um there are all sorts of things that cost all, sort, all sorts of money. So you find interesting options for ways to reduce costs or, or just make things look the way you want them to. It's like you have control, but you also have limitations. So that's been one of the fun things to try and navigate. Uh, what made you decide to go about it that way? The cloth board? Well, yeah. Or to self-publish? Uh, both, yeah. Uh, the cloth board was just a lot cheaper than a mounted board, but I've come to really like it. But, you know, you can't really trust anything I say because, I mean, you know, what am I going to say? I hate this cloth board, but 
you do your best. Just live with it. You know, <laughs> it saves me some money. But uh, but I kind of like it. it. It feels thematic. It feels like we've got this map that we just threw on the table and said, all right, where am I going next? I'm going to Thessalonica. All right, whatever. Um, but, you know, I think the self-publishing thing, I had um, um, shopped the game around to publishers and actually gotten a few nibbles, but no bites, which which wasn't too surprising. It's really, you know, I can understand publishers being having some trepidation about an unusual theme like this. Um, but, you know, in last year with the container shipping problems and nobody can get games over here from China and the Kickstarter approach to game production, I'm going to ask you for money and then you'll get your game maybe sometime next year, except maybe not because maybe it's, you know, I can't get it on a container from China. And oh, by the way, China has, there are some problems with printing in China. Let's just leave it at that. Yeah. It's like, I don't, I don't, I don't know if I entirely like the way that the industry does things. And is this an opportunity to just try something different? Just, you know, just see what happens. Um, so that was kind of what triggered that decision was just let's, let's just see. Let's just see if we can get a game out into the world that's all domestically produced, that is no plastic, that's no China, that's, you know, ships immediately upon order, you know, and, and see if people like that. See if it's um, see if it's viable, you know? Yeah. Uh, you mentioned publishers being perhaps a little reluctant because of its unusual theme. Do you mean it's it's Christian setting? Yeah. Was there ever, did anyone ever say maybe you should uh, retheme this? Only one person. Um, a couple of people said we just, yeah, that's, it, it, we we see what you're doing here. We like what you're doing here. It's not for us, but we think what you're trying to do is important enough that you shouldn't change it. Mm -hmm. um, and I had, an, and one publisher said, I'm not going to sign this because I don't think I can sell it. Um, I could maybe see potentially signing it if you change the theme, but I'm not sure what you should change it to. So, uh, but I felt pretty strongly that, um, you know, I really wanted the game to come out with its original skin, at least in its first release. You know, a reskin at some future time is something I'd, I'd maybe contemplate um but i felt and and my play testers were really very supportive on this point they're like you know you could just make it a generic we're writing a biography about some ancient person you know pick a famous ancient ruler or whatever and it, the mechanics would sort of support that but they were like you know you've really built things around you know some of the ideas that you have about writing these gospels and you really shouldn't change it you really should keep it the way it is and you know, I really took that to heart. And um, so, yeah, I, I don't think reskinning it would have gotten it signed with an actual publisher anyway. Mm -hmm. um, but in the end, obviously, self-publishing, you don't you don't have to make that choice. So w was there ever a point where you noodled with a retheme? I have some preliminary ideas sketched out. Um, you can tell I'm serious about something when it makes it into my notebook usually i'll tweet about you know i'll tweet about stupid stuff that comes into my mind like hey let's make a game about fatbergs in the city sewer or whatever you know i love <laughs> i love posting stuff like that but the uh you know i can tell i'm serious when i care enough to write it down and so the one idea sure. i have for evangelists that i i have actually put some thought into is that we are making mixtapes in the 80s and so the different cities are different locations in the school building and the different tradition cards represent 
you know, songs that, on tapes that people have that are sort of queued up. And the thing about, you know, cassette tapes is you can't just skip ahead to the song you want. You sometimes just have to take the song that is, you know, that's currently loaded up on your on your cassette unless you fast forward but there's no time for that it's between periods and so we're like going around and trying to make the coolest mixtape the themes become sort of the theme of the tape like oh this is a workout mix or this is a get pumped for the big game mix or whatever yeah. um so yeah i think that would be silly and and nostalgic and and kind of fun um i don't know if people who've never had contact with a cassette tape in their life would would really care about that though so i'm not <laughs> i'm not sure <laughs> if it's a marketable idea but it it sort of made me chuckle a little bit to think about yeah one thing that i've been noodling with a little bit lately on uh, myself is this idea of games as devotion so the two examples that i i mentioned earlier the mission and nicaea are are both in a sense devotional games they're both um they're both wrestling with some some aspect of uh, for lack of a better word, church. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Amabel's game, for instance, in, in many ways, I think is um, a, a very tragic game where I think it's about a person who has been abused and taken advantage of by the institutional church um, complaining about that institution not living up to its own version of history. Um, and Ben Madison's The Mission, of course, uh, was inspired by his own faith transition where he visited the Hagia Sophia and was so impressed with this, you know, great sweep of Christian tradition that it eventually led him to abandon um, his Mormon faith tradition for uh, he's now, he, he attends the Episcopalian church. Mm-hmm. And so the game, you can, you can, in both of these cases, you can get this sense of uh, whether it's complaint or whether it's awe at Christian history. Um, was there ever a devotional core for you in the Acts of the Evangelists, or was it just uh, a game design curiosity? Yeah, it's a, that's an interesting question. I think for me, so I, I uh, so my little company is called Bell Tower Games, and I first had the idea to to start this company back in 2011, and it was to make uh, Christian-themed games. Um, not that that was the only stuff I was working on, but it was to it was to publish that kind of stuff, um, ideally from other people, actually. And I got a few submissions that were pretty good. Um, it, it fizzled for different reasons. It doesn't matter. But I think that the interesting thing was that there was a lot of blowback to that at board game geek which is kind of par for the course at board game geek you know people just love to argue about stupid stuff there so um you know (laughs) but it it was kind of like why are you making you know these jesus games for good christian boys and girls why can't they just play regular games or or whatever secular games or whatever and it wasn't so much you know trying to um do anything you know, uh, like that so much as just, I think there is, there are interesting stories to tell and there are interesting episodes of, of history or, or tradition or whatever you want to call it, um, that could give rise to interesting game mechanics. And, and that's always what interests me is what can we, um, what kind of decisions can we, uh, give players, what kind of tension can we put them in? And so, you know, disciples was a good example of that. How can we, um, simulate the feeling of temptation 
and the Judas mechanic was kind of a way to do that. Um, so evangelist was kind of that same way. It was kind of like, how can we, and I, I think this really comes through nicely in your review is how can we grapple with the problems of, um, of writing a history and, um, and I think the idea that emerges out of that is, if there is one, um, is that, you know, history is, um, if nothing else, it's certainly edited. You know, the stories that were chosen for the uh, the gospel texts, they were chosen for a reason. Maybe those reasons are inscrutable to us. Um, but as you're playing the game, you realize, like, I'm seeing all these stories and I can't put them all in. I have to make a choice. And it. I think people have commented on that's, you know, that does feel like you are writing a biography. You have to make choices about what goes in and what gets left out and that that's okay. And I think it also, you know, perhaps maybe has a little bit to say about the discrepancies between the, um, you know, the gospels and things like that. I think I spent, you know, just a, a number of years in my wasted youth, um, you know, debating religion and stuff with atheists on the internet or whatever. And, and I just came to realize, you know, far too, it took me far too long to realize that a lot of the stuff we're arguing about and debating, isn't it, it, it's, it's kind of dumb. Some of it like, Oh, this, this gospel says one guy was there and this one says two guys were there. How do you explain that? Huh? 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 And it's Mm -hmm. like, well, you know, you're, I, is it possible we're thinking about these texts in the wrong way? Is it possible that we're asking the wrong questions and uninteresting questions about the gospel? The, the more interesting thing is, why did the writer include the stuff that he included? And, and for what reason? What's the point he's trying to communicate? What are the assumptions that he's making? You know, that that kind of stuff has interests me more, I think. And so I think that's uh, to the extent that there's a devotional element to the game, I, I think that's maybe what it's driving at. So one of the ways that I feel you you express that, that, that there may be um, differing goals or perspectives or biases, is at the beginning of the game, everybody receives a theme card. Um, do you want to describe that for our listeners, how that functions? Yes, yeah. So each, th- so the, um, each of the canonical gospels is sort of argued at least you know you crack open your study bible and it it will say oh matthew's theme is jesus the jewish messiah depicts Mm -hmm. jesus as fulfilling prophecies from the old testament uh, messianic predictions uh, that come to find fulfillment in jesus and mark is the suffering servant and luke is the ideal human and john is the um divine son of God. And so I thought, all right, well, let's, let's start with that. And then, but we're, we want more than four players to be able to play the game. So let's just make up a couple of others. And, um, you know, but, but, you know, so we have the, um, the wise teacher and the victor over the powers of darkness or whatever. So there are six themes, you get one, and then you can take any tradition cards that you want from the board, but the ones that are in your theme are particularly valuable for you. There's a scoring system that, that rewards you for having cards that match your theme. And I, I think that's sort of your editorial angle for uh, the text you're trying to communicate. But I, I think what works in the game is that, um, you know, 
there are texts that you will include that aren't part of your theme because not everything is in service, you know, to your theme. And, um, and there are also a number of traditions that could be used in a couple of themes. And so there, there isn't a gospel that, or is, uh, there isn't a canonical gospel that's the wise sayings of Jesus, but there are extra canonical gospels that are like that. And, and we think, uh, correct me on this, Dan, but I, we think there are perhaps possibly, probably sayings gospels that are perhaps sources for some of the canonical gospels that are lost to history, um, but that, uh, that might exist. So, you know, there could be texts like that, but someone else might just take one of those sayings and say, ah, this really fits into my theme of, you know, Jesus being the son of man. And so that's, that's what I'm going to do with that. Right. I noticed in your, uh, in your comment that the, you uh, had asked for a broader range of, <laughs> of uh, thematic <laughs> options. So what is the, uh, what are some of the things that you think could have perhaps been included in this and what's the, um, you, you like, are, are they based on sort of um, textual things that you get out of the Gospels, or are they um, sort of reconstruction of the historical Jesus kind of thoughts? Or anyway, I'm interested to hear what you have to say about that. Yeah. So, one of the things you mentioned that really uh, gels with me is you mentioned that in the writing of the Gospels, you're going to have to make some trade offs. Um, you know, and, and the game does a wonderful job, and um, I really want to commend you for this. The game does a wonderful job of putting the player in the headspace of a historian. Um, now, personally, my, my perspective on historians is that in many ways, nowadays, we're all historians um, in the sense that we're all online and we're all creating a textual record. And that textual yeah. record is often very curated. Um, you know, we're, we're self-aware creatures. And I know that when I um, put something online, I know that there's some degree of, if not, if not factual, but potential permanence to the things I put online. Mm -hmm. um, because even if I were to delete that, there's, you know, there's no guarantee that somebody hasn't screenshotted it or that the Wayback Machine won't capture it. Um, so there's an element of curation. So just, just to give kind of a frivolous example, a few weeks ago, I, uh, was in the hospital and, yep. um, I thought that I was having a, uh, cardiac episode because I actually bruised my rib from vomiting so hard. Oh dear. And, but here's the thing, Jeff, is I didn't want everyone to know exactly what had happened because it's kind of gross and it's kind of embarrassing, um, you know, to throw up so hard that you, you almost break a rib. And so yeah. I, I was very conscious when I put this online that I was going to say, you know, I'm in the hospital, but I'm doing okay. Thank you to the friends who have reached out. And it was going to be a very uh, careful version of events. And in that moment, I, and I think this is a moment that we all have. Uh, I was a historian. I was creating something that future generations, if they care about me, which they won't, um, they could look back and say, oh, well, he was in the hospital and look at how this informs his views and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Right. Um, now, of course, that's that's an extreme example because me going to the ER for a day is not going to, I don't think, majorly impact anything. But what your game captures so perfectly is the sense that even people who are operating in good faith 
um, are going to bring things to the table when they try to write a history. Uh, they will have um, biases and perspectives. They are going to have their own lived experiences that they're drawing on. They'll think that things are important. And very crucially, uh, they are going to omit things. And in fact, that's, uh, to me, one of the most important parts of history is not only what do you choose to include, but every inclusion necessitates exclusions. It necessitates omissions. Right. In part because in the time period you're talking about, as you point out, it's very expensive to create a text. You can't just run it off at FedEx or, you know, whatever. Um, and the game captures this. So uh, one of the actions you take most often in the game is the tradition action where you go to a city and you want to you want to dive through the traditions that that particular congregation believes about the events of the life of Jesus. And so you draw up, uh, up to four cards and you look at these cards and you can keep one or two of them. But really you're making uh, a pretty impactful decision because not only are you choosing what to keep, you're choosing what to put away. Mm -hmm. And I'm intrigued by the fact that not only is the game telling us about history and not only is it telling us about potential uh, conundrums or limitations with the authorship of the gospels, it's also telling us something about game design because I was fascinated by what you chose to omit. <laughs> okay. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. Um, and so, for example, um, you know, you give uh, six themes, uh, which we could say are different identities of Jesus. And I was, I was fascinated that you have, as you've pointed out, you have the four gospels, and then you have sort of this, the sayings gospel tradition, which you're, you're right to identify that we have a lot of sayings gospels and, and a lot of suspected saying go sayings gospels that we have lost. But one of the things that stood out to me is, where's Jesus the zealot? Or where is Jesus the liberator from Rome? You know, the anticipated Messiah as opposed to the Messiah that they got. Mm -hmm. um, where is Jesus the Essene? Or where is Jesus the uh, radical liberator? And I, so I'm curious uh, why these identities and not other identities? Yeah, I, I don't think it's anything... Yeah, no, I, you're right that it is a it's an editorial choice that informs, you know, the, the choices that it, you know, really circumscribes the choices that players get to make as well. Um, I think from a early time, you know, I, I think what I decided was that the story cards, the tradition cards were going to consist of things that are in the actual gospels and mm -hmm. the reason and the reason for that wasn't even so much just because it, it, in some ways it was pragmatic as much as anything else um i designed the early prototypes of this game with the you know revised standard version study bible i had been given as a third grader in church and it's got a nice little sure. concordance and a harmony of the gospels in the back. And I wanted to be able to see kind of when does each of these events happen in this reconstruction? When do, or where does it happen? Who might have been there? So I can say who the eyewitnesses might have been and sort of what is it driving at in terms of the motifs, which is one of the things that comes into scoring. So I, I sort of felt like I could fit all of those things into um 
or the stories that I chose and, and, you know, the themes that are sort of built around them um, were just things that, you know, I, I felt could be made to work. Um, now, if you, of, of course, if you read Riza Aslan's book or something like that, it's, you know, uh, it takes those same, uh, some of the same stories and weaves them into an entirely different interpretation of what Jesus was all about. And, you know, same thing, the apocalyptic prophet and same thing, the, you know, uh, the uh, failed liberator and, and all that kind of thing. Um, I didn't, I, I, I suspect I didn't really go down those, those particular roads with this game really for reasons of personal bias as much as anything else, if I'm being honest. But um, it's interesting to me to think about, could we, sort of hack the deck and, uh, and, and, <laughs> you know, and reconstruct a set of six cards that would be compatible with sort of a, an alternative version of things that, that someone could tell if they, if they wanted to, it's, it's something that didn't really occur to me, but it's, it's certainly an interesting thing to think about. So when you were creating this deck of 36, uh, events from the life of Jesus, um, obviously the life of Jesus, uh, as expressed in the four canonical gospels has many more than 36 events. Yeah. 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 Oh yeah. So how did you decide these 36 events and not others? It was, it was really just that process of at the, at the outset, I knew that, uh, so I sort of settled on these six themes, um, you know, from the beginning and then said, okay, I need six, six or seven cards, uh, six or seven stories for each of them. Mm. And, you know, and we need some things that are witnesses that are, that are witnessed. Uh, the temptation is an exception to that, but most of the cards are witnessed by somebody, um, you know, and, you know, and, and so all these kind of constraints. So that was, I, I, it was, this was eight years ago now, so I can't completely remember <laughs> rigorously the exact process that I went through, but, you know, you make a good point in your review that there are, are so many great stories and so many um, key moments that, that got left out. You know, everyone's got a favorite story or a couple of stories and, and uh, hopefully people will see some of the stories they know well. You know, the other thing is some things are really, compacted you know like card 36 is the resurrection well yeah. really that's that's sort of a composite of the empty to well, well the tomb the empty tomb the um post res or the you know appearances to the disciples in the upper room the appearance to this guy cleopas on the emmaus road there's so many different stories that are part of the you know resurrection and that card sort of encapsulates all of them. So I think there are a few yeah. cards like that, that you, you have to understand them to be part of a bigger, um, you know, part of a bigger story that this is just the, the title we give to this section of, of these texts. This is a decision you made a long time ago. It sounds like you relied a lot on um, how the compilers of the RSV <laughs> may have uh, outlined events. For example, um, like the cleansing of the temple occurring near the end of Jesus's ministry, as opposed to during the beginning. Yeah. Is that right? Uh, right. Uh, who, who knows really, but that's the whole point is the, the chronology is definitely understood. There are many things in this game that are understood to be, you know, um, 
just decisions that are made in the name of making a playable game it should yeah. be taken as rigorous or authoritative like is this chronological sequence accurate yeah certainly not because the whole one of the whole points of the game is chronology was not a driving concern or not the driving concern for the gospel writers they cared more about you know uh getting their message across and putting like things together and so did they play around with chronology yes and so yeah. does this game play around with chronology absolutely so yeah so the numbers are um are sort of a a guide but not a uh, yeah definitely not a objective fact of reality for sure well one thing i have to commend you on jeff is when playing i think it illustrates that quite magnificently you know the gospel of john uh you know when we talk about the cleansing of the temple occurring near the beginning of jesus's ministry um and you look at the gospel of john and and some people who we would, would say are literalists um, who want to read the text literally and say that all the events occurred exactly as they are outlined and as they are um, as they are placed chronologically, might say, well, Jesus cleansed the temple twice, um, which you you start to get into that territory, which which for me as someone who uh, who studies history and writes historical papers, I, I just go, ah, oh, that hurts me to yeah. to say that John can't be organized around around a thematic goal um, where it's, it's around these various feast days as opposed to a strict chronology. And the game really gets that across that sometimes you're trying to design your gospel with different uh, functions in mind. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think that's, and, and I think the, the point of the game is to say, you know, and that's okay. That's not a subversive thing to say because, you know, the because it's consistent with what scholars think about the, the you know people who can read these texts in the actual greek and have thought about them a lot you know like it's not necessary I, I you know i think there is a um an idea that's very common and pervasive in in a, you know a number of segments of christianity that the texts are inspired right like the bible itself says you know um, in Timothy that, you know, the, the Bible is inspired. Okay. Every word of scripture is God breathed. Okay. Um, and I think what we take that to mean is that the writers are really more just stenographers, you know, that we're transcribing a text that's been received from on high and there's no, um, human authorial input. I think the texts themselves, um, don't bear that out, you know, and that isn't to say that there isn't some divine providential aspect to how these texts were composed. That's not necessarily what I'm saying. It, it could be that, but, um, but I think you look at the, like what you point out with the synoptic problem, which gospel came first? Why are we asking that? Because there's a lot of similarity between a few of the gospels. And it seems pretty overwhelmingly likely that some of them used you know, at least one of them used at least one other one as a source. And that's yeah. okay. That doesn't necessarily mean that these, well, then that means that these texts weren't inspired. It doesn't mean that. It it, it means that there's a human element to these texts. And this game is p playing around with the human element to these texts, not the divine side. It makes no comment on that. Just purely as speculation. Is this the kind of game that you could ever envision having, say, a 64 card deck where 
say the the events are drawn not only from uh, these particular events, but also maybe non-canonical sources or non-orthodox sources, and you mix them up and have to go from there? Or would that, uh, would that in some way undermine the function of the piece? I don't, well, so I, I don't know. I've not really thought about that. It was certainly suggested from time to time that the, um, so the game for your listeners sake has a, a secondary deck of traditions. And in the final form of the game, what happens is when I pick up a tradition, I pick up like the cleansing of the temple. And I say, I'm going to put this in my gospel. Someone else can follow my action and take that same card out of this secondary deck of cards. And now they also have, you know, the cleansing of the temple in their gospel. It sort of emulates this borrowing idea that we just talked about. Um, people have justifiably commented that this is a somewhat fiddly system and and it was even more fiddly in some of its previous forms. And they've said, why don't you just have a bigger deck or something like that? And my answer was always to say, well, yeah, maybe I'll think about that at some point. Coming up with this deck was a lot of work and I just don't want to do it. So, <laughs> uh, so I think that is, that is, you know, kind of where I've been, where I've landed for many years. So expanding the scope of the, deck to also include non-canonical gospels and things like that. Um, I, you know, I think the thing for me with some of that kind of idea is it, it gets at a question that I think you brought up as, as kind of a source of trepidation is kind of when are these texts written and, um, are there still, um, eyewitnesses still alive at the time that these texts are being written. And I think the game in the game world, whether or not you think that that's the case um, for the actual text in the games world, I think it is in some of the extra canonical texts. Um, it depends on the text we're talking about. Some of them I think are, um, you know, pretty well understood to be second century. So those are writings by Jesus communities um, but they aren't, you know, they aren't even argued to have been um, the production of Jesus' associates or the next generation of, of such people. What does that mean for their value as historical sources and all that kind of thing? That's a bigger debate, um, but I think in terms of how to fit them into the game's mechanics and, and conceits, um, that would be more of a challenge, not to say it couldn't be done, but um, I haven't really thought about it at all. It's an, it's an interesting idea for sure. So one of the things that just leaps out at me, and in part this is because of something that's codified in the game, which is the presence of these eyewitnesses, um, but also you were kind enough to send me some notes that you had written mm -hmm. uh, to express your intent as the designer and some of the thought processes that were behind the design of the game. Um, but the presence of those eyewitnesses uh, leaps out at me. Why, why was there that choice to put them in? Is that an expression of your reading of uh, the scholarship or is that for the function of gameplay? Um, and the reason I ask is because in gameplay terms, interviewing those eyewitnesses is one of the, if not the, uh, greatest sources of point incomes. 
uh, in the game. Yeah, it's um, yeah, it was definitely this game is so here's a so here, here's kind of a roundabout answer. Maybe you're getting used to roundabout answers from me for now, by now. Um, I, I, let's call them thorough. I like yeah, there thorough we go. Answers. That's that's a better that's a better adjective. Um, so I am not really a historical game designer in the sense that someone like Cole or Amabel is that they're they're really trying to grapple with the history and get it right and all that kind of thing. Um, I am really more kind of what can we get interesting decisions to, you know, to, to maybe emulate some historical thing, but, you know, so this necessarily there's going to be assumptions, there's going to be conceits, there's going to be um, stylizations. And I think this game is really built around the idea of what if we took Bauckham's argument at face value and Burridge's argument at face value can we make a fun game about that? And the answer from the very beginning of playtesting the game was yes. People in my group always said, this is fun. If that hadn't been the case, I would never have moved forward with this um, to, to get it to the point where I'm now, you know, publishing it myself, which I never thought I would even do. Um, so I think that that's really taken, that's the extent of what the game is trying to um, say is, if we assume that the Gospels do bear eyewitness testimony, where did that testimony come from? How was it acquired? And here's a fanciful reconstruction of, of how that might have taken place. It is certainly not realistic. Even if that is the way that the Gospels were written, this game is not the way the Gospels were written. It's just for fun. It's just a game. But I do think in some ways that having a game that's a bit stylized about the Gospels, which are themselves stylized accounts of their subject, is not completely inappropriate. <laughs> um, so sure. I, I think that in what I look for, I'm not a historian, I'm a physicist. And in physics, we use toy models to try and um, understand things. And, it, you know, everything we have is a model of reality, even historians and historical arguments. Absolutely. But, yeah. but I, I think a toy model is here is a deliberately simplified model that we're going to use to try and explain something. And so an example in my graduate work, I looked at the motion of atoms on surfaces. And so what if we pretended those atoms were just cubes and they're moving around on a square grid? What can we, you know, deduce from that and then look at our experiments and see how the atoms cluster and, and form islands and things. And if we can sort of reproduce some of the same behavior, then we can say, well, at least this aspect of that toy model was accurate. And I like that approach to game design because it says, if I take something that is, you know, I don't want to make a card driven game. I, I have made one card driven game, but I don't want to have to have 240 different cards that show how much I've researched this subject. And I know every single thing that everyone in this history uh, did. I'm content to say, if we simplify this thing in this really dramatic way to just these two or three assumptions, what falls out of that? Do any interesting decisions fall out of that that look like the kind of decisions a person in this setting might have had to make? And, um, you know, I, I think that approach to game design is, you know, anyway, that's that's what I enjoy. But that's where it comes from, really, is my physicist training as much as anything else, I guess. Could you give us an example of something that uh, maybe came from Richard Bauckham's work? Um, the one that leaps to mind, of course, for me is Inclusio. Yeah, that's right. So the, he has a couple of different things like that that are um, sort of 
things that he uses as uh, textual arguments for why the, you know, for um, why the, he feels that the Gospels um, contain eyewitness testimony in them. So the inclusio is a good example. This is a extended quotation. And so it's something where you have a person who is mentioned at the beginning and the end of some passage for no apparent narrative reason. Like, you know, and Peter asked Jesus, you know, blah, blah, blah thing. And then stuff happens, stuff happens, stuff happens. And then the disciples, including Peter, all left the building, you know, and I was like, well, what did Peter have to do with any of that? And his point is that there are, that the, the reason for that might be that, well, this is, Peter was the source for this. And so you have a few examples of this throughout the, the Gospels. Um, another example is there are cases where there are named characters, um, in the assuming <laughs> assuming that mark is the first gospel which itself is an issue of hot debate but if you assume that that was true then you would say oh the na- if someone is a named character in a later gospel that's probably a case of embellishment but in some cases it's it is present in mark's gospel but not in matthew and and luke um, and an example of this is Jairus, the ruler whose son was healed this person is named in mark's gospel whereas in Luke and Matthew, it's just a ruler whose son was healed kind of thing. And so Bauckham's like, what's going on? Why didn't they include the guy's name, given that they're copying the text that used that name? Maybe the reason is, um, you know, that that um, Jairus himself was the source for that story. Now, you can say that's plausible, implausible, whatever. Bauckham's book, I think, is, you know, is interesting to read whether or not you ultimately buy his arguments. But what I think the, the core assumption is, um, for the purposes of my game, is ultimately that Bauckham's thesis is at least plausible. And the reason I would say that that's the case is that the if we say that the texts are being written in the 60s or 70s AD, and we can make arguments for why that's plausible. Um, mm-hmm. Some people would say that's not accurate, but but perhaps we could at least say, for the sake of argument, we'll grant that as being plausible. That's only 30 or 40 years after um, the cross. And life expectancy was shorter back then, uh, but well, average life expectancy was shorter um, because infant mortality was high. But people still lived into their 60s or 70s. It happened. And so if you're 20 or maybe even 30 when uh, when the cross happens, you might still be alive at 60 or 70, so into the 60s or 70s AD. So it's is it plausible that there could have been people from the first generation of disciples and, and believers who are still alive? If we accept that it's at least plausible or maybe even just possible I give you the acts of the evangelist. <laughs> that's kind of, <laughs> that's, you know, that's essentially what it's saying is it's, it's, if we take this toy model of the plausibility of this idea, you know, this is the game that falls out of that. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so I take it though, from some of, uh, from what you expressed as being a source of concern going into the game is that, um, is that the, the witnesses in particular were a sticking point by which I infer that you look at the Gospels perhaps more as a collection of, um, as more the result of a process of like folklore or something. Could you comment more on that about, you know, not that we're 
you know, arguing with one another or anything, but I'm, I'm just interested to hear your take and, and why that jumped out at you so much. I come from a heretical faith tradition. Um, I was raised in the Mormon faith tradition, which uh, has a, a developing, is the generous word, uh, view on biblical scholarship. Um, and, and the place where that really becomes very apparent is actually in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, so Joseph Smith, when he was composing scripture, whether that was him authoring it or it being done by revelation or whatever, um, one of the texts that he produces is called the Book of Moses. Another is the Book of Abraham. Now, the provenance of these texts is very uh, testy, but these end up commenting um, on the Hebrew Bible, specifically on the Torah. Um, And one of the propositions that the book of Moses makes is that the first five books of the Hebrew Bible are indeed written by Moses. And this this has had a very interesting effect on... uh, on Mormonism, where um, Mormonism right there in their articles of faith, the eighth article of faith, um, we believe the Bible to be the word of God as far as it is translated correctly. And we also believe the Book of Mormon to be the word of God. So right there in that article of faith is the anticipation that texts can have human influence, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which already sets apart the Mormon faith tradition from some of its sister traditions that come out of that period of awakening. Um, However, because there's this connection to the book of Moses and the book of Abraham, even though Mormonism trends non-literal, it has been placed at odds with a number of uh, scholarly hypotheses and assumptions that have developed really over the 20th and the, the first portion here of the 21st century. Um, and some of these some of these were developing actually at the same time that Joseph Smith was alive, but as a frontier boy in, in America, he may have missed out on some of that. And I'm speaking, of course, of the documentary hypothesis. So this idea that, um, that the Torah is composed by multiple people, that it almost certainly is not composed by Moses, um, and there are a lot of little reasons that a scholar might look to to demonstrate that. Um, but growing up Mormon, um, there was that tension where um, we're supposed to look at Scripture as though they're informed by people, but also on the other side of that tightrope, um, you've got alligators down below where it has to be <laughs> literal to some degree. Right. Um, and, and really, it's interesting that in the last few years, Um, with the availability of information on the internet and as academia has publicized its materials a little bit more widely. um, For the first few decades of the internet, this wasn't a problem because the reality is you cannot find everything on the internet. Um, But, but there's kind of been that trickling effect from the white, from the ivory tower where as academics uh, publicize their information more widely, as they write books that enter into the popular consciousness, more and more it's becoming very apparent that uh, this, the current state of academe is not in line with some of the assumptions that Mormons have made about the Hebrew Bible. And so this, this is the lens through which I have uh, viewed 
biblical scholarship my entire life. Mm-hmm. Um, this is an example of my own biases in that I, I can't escape it. Um, when I, when I look at a text, I have to be very careful, uh, because it's, it's probable that I am holding contradictory assumptions at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, which is why when we train historians, the very first course that is generally taught at the institutions I've been at has been a course in historiography where one of the major units is how to recognize your own biases. And that's my bias is, uh, is this tension between two very contradictory uh, elements. And so when I look at the uh, New Testament, um, simultaneously, I hold a very uh, you, you could say orthodox perspective where um, I'm receiving this tradition where they're written by uh, their named authors, even though they don't state that. Um, <laughs> right. Where, you know, um, Mormonism, like most modern Protestantism, tends to be Pauline um, and tends to read very eisegetically a lot of Paul's assumptions into the Gospels. Um and even though Mormonism argues in favor of a hard apostasy where, you know, at, at a certain point, um, you know, and no one can agree whether it's second century, fourth century, when, when does it happen? But at that point, there stops being any good work done and the truth of Christianity is lost and it's plunged into this uh, emptiness. So, so this is what I was raised with. And so it's impossible for me to escape that. So when I see eyewitnesses, though, my uh, academic side rebels against it pretty hard mm-hmm. um, in part because, you know, uh, just some of the names that you mentioned are, are people that, yes, I, I admit they get my heart racing a little bit. Um, you know, you mentioned Bauckham and I remember back in 2008, the, uh, the journal for the study of the historical Jesus had a whole issue um, that was pretty much just on Bauckham and it included a rebuttal by him as its final piece. Um and it was uh, there were a number of wonderful articles in there just debating some of his uh, stances. I've read his work. I don't personally find it very persuasive, and and it, it it's it's hard for me because uh, in in my own heart there are two contradicting traditions. You know, there's this faith tradition, and then there's this scholarly tradition, and I have found that they very rarely talk to one another. Um, either in the real world or in my heart. Yeah. And so, uh, so when Bauckham is proposing, for instance, uh, his particular interpretation of inclusio, when inclusio is often this literary, um, you know, it, we see it all the time throughout all of the uh, Jewish and then later Christian tradition as a sort of thematic element. I, I'm not sure I've been pers- persuaded, and I actually don't see many scholars being persuaded um, by his deployment of it as quotation, as opposed to like a thematic emphasis. Sure. And then there's just the the, the question that he raises about, um, is an eyewitness, for instance, would we classify an eyewitness as a tradent of the oral tradition who's not only originating it, but guaranteeing it through ha- the handling of apothems and pericopes. And so there's all these questions that, for me that spin off of his argument. So I don't find it very persuasive. Um, 
And just uh, because, but that, so a lot of that is my own baggage, if that makes sense. No, I hope that, I hope that wasn't too dull of an answer. No, no, it's, I think it's, I think it's very interesting. And I think, you know, sort of my blind spot here is I, I don't know nearly enough about folklore and, and, and how folklore develops, how long it takes to develop. And then it's it, so if you talk about something like the documentary hypothesis in the Old Testament, you're talking about text that surely, you know, you could say there are hundreds of years, thousands, maybe even over which these texts could maybe not thousands, but anyway, a long time over which these texts could be written. Yeah, folklore. Sure, I get it. Um, can it happen fast? And I, I just don't know enough about the subject to really have a, uh, a, a really well considered opinion. Um, but I, I think there, you know, at the same time, I think one of the things I like about Bauckham and, and others arguments about sort of story, it's kind of like, does the community, these communities, um, have some geographic isolation, um, but not, it's not total, you know, but they have some, you know, uh, autonomy from from one another you know and there's some crosstalk between them and some apostles zipping around that are talking to them all are they individually shaping the stories for their own purposes or are they individually preserving the stories are they the custodians of the stories and and so i i think what what i like about the idea uh, that it's it it's maybe the latter or that at least the latter is plausible is admittedly an argument from real life, which is ridiculous because this is a world removed from us by 2000 years, totally different culture, different language, different mental processes, everything. But nevertheless, you know, I could think about, um, you know, a game I once played, a game of risk at my friend's house during college. And um, we were sitting around the table. I can tell you exactly what seat I was sitting in. One of our friends wasn't playing. He kept going up and down the stairs. He was fiddling around with a BB gun he had bought. And then he came down the stairs, white as a sheet, said, guys, the SWAT team is outside. We're like, dude, we're, we're playing risk. Cut it out. You're being stupid. He opens <laughs> the door. Floodlights come on. Down on the ground, down on the ground, you know. And uh, he's like, "It's just a BB gun. It's just a BB gun." Uh, in comes the SWAT team. They make us hold hands. You know, one of our guys got frisked. It was just, it was a horrible episode. And of course, this guy got in a little trouble. He was, or a lot of trouble. He was playing BB gun sniper up on the third floor and shot like oh, a pizza no. guy and all this stupid stuff or whatever. He's a total idiot. But the point is, like, this happened. I don't know, 25 years ago. And I think if you gathered together the seven or eight of us who were present for this, we would probably get some of the details wrong, but basic gist of this guy who I'm not going to name, but it was Brian Wilczewski, um, was being a <laughs> BB gun sniper. Like on that, we would surely agree. And if one of us said, oh, no, 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 it was Steve who was the BB gun sniper, we'd be like, no, 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 no. Remember, it was it was Brian. Like, remember when he went out the door? So I can I can see how memory in community could work if you know the people who are participants in the story are involved um does that seem implausible to the in the ancient world or is it simply like well we just don't know enough to really say either way um and, and we don't have enough contemporary examples of that kind of thing happening 
You use the word gist, and that's one of the words that Bauckham likes to use, um, is this idea of that perhaps that the eyewitnesses had created enough stability of tradition to reliably transmit uh, these ideas. And where the documentary hypothesis comparison really is very bad, as you've pointed out, is you're, you're right in the sense that the, the duration of time between when, say, Abraham is supposed to have been kicking around versus when we have the first mention of Israel, which is the Stella of Merneptah, that's about that's like an 800 year span. So that that introduces an enormous amount of wiggle room. Where for me it falls apart is more a sense of scale. Um, you know, one of the things that I is curiously absent from your game, for example, is uh, the Roman Empire. And <laughs> yeah, there, go on. <laughs> and and I was I was curious. Um, I was chatting with Cole Worley earlier, and um, he mentioned that you know he would be interested to know if at any point you had included in your game like an opposition. You know, is, is anyone trying to repress these stories, or are, you know, is anyone summoning Paul to Rome? Um, you know, the, you know, do you know what I mean? Yep that there might be pushback. And so to me, when we're talking about um, house churches, that very rapidly, there are hundreds of them. Um, you know, the, the places that you seem to give in your game tend, seem to focus quite a bit on like a Pauline style diaspora of, of these traditions. But just looking at the textual evidence, we have all of these elements. We have this rapid expansion that would very quickly outpace the available eyewitnesses. Um, we have the lack of literacy. Um, we have different people quoting Jesus in different ways. Um, for instance, in 1 Corinthians, we have Paul, who very much seems to be quoting Jesus on matters of, say, marriage, where he directly will say, but the Lord says this um, about some of these matters, and it's absent of any of the grammatical parallelism or chiasm um, that we would see, for instance, in one of the gospel texts. So we have different people who seem to be using these texts in different ways, and that their usage of those texts is always adapted to the circumstances under which they are writing. Um, that, to me, introduces not, not, and I don't mean this in a way that says that they're bad historians, Rather that they're historians in a way that we don't think about as modern people. Oh, for um, sure. Yeah, for sure. Th that this seems to have been a very fluid uh, tradition and that it seems like it, it may have been anticipated that it should be adapted to changing circumstances. Well, so and, for it. Oh, go ahead. Go, go, go. Well, just in the sense that um, that when we have, say, the Last Supper, that is are the things that Jesus said at the Last Supper things that Jesus said? Well, maybe, um, certainly some of them possibly, but also in the sense that you have this early Christian communal meal. Um, and is the, it, w which way is this explanation moving through history? Is it that there was the Last Supper and then that transmitted forward and therefore created the communal meal? Or is the communal meal a separate a tradition that arises as something that these early Christians, these adherents of the way, 
can have to themselves, and then they draw that connection backward in time. So details like that, um, just, just the way that we observe cultural memory functioning, um, that now, nowadays we have a lot more information on how cultural memory operates, that it projects backward as often as it is actually taking information from the past, that, that history is, uh, that an individual memory might be more or less reliable, although, um, you know, we, we have to lean very hard on uh, Bauckham's gist to agree on that, um, that cultural memory can be very mutable. Um, and, it, and it can adjust to circumstances and it can drop things uh, that don't apply to their circumstances anymore. Um, and, and that this is, this is not something that I would say um, necessarily, I, I'm, to, to clarify, I'm not approaching this from the perspective where I'm trying to deploy a gotcha. No, of course. And uh, yeah, I think that's uh, that's all. I mean, you know, yeah, certainly there's a fluidity to the Old Testament quotations throughout the New Testament, including from Jesus himself. There's a midrash sort of <laughs> character to some of them, you know. So that's yeah, I think that's certainly the case. I do think there are um there are some texts that at least show some evidence of being creedal affirmations and of being hymns or something like that. And of these parallelisms that suggest that this was a teaching that was deployed for ease of memory. Does it trace back to Jesus himself? You know, that's a debatable thing, but there, there are certainly, um, you know, some things that the, the, if we take the writers at face value, they certainly seem to have uh, built some apparatus around ease of memorizing of, of some of the important elements, like the, the thing in, um, you know, in first Corinthians where, you know, Paul goes through the list of, you know, witnesses to the resurrection. And it sort of has a f flow to it that sort of feels like this isn't just something he just, you know, threw together. This was something that, um, was passed along to him. And I think that is, if that's not the case, then, the the later you know like the early church fathers really make a heel turn because a lot of them you know show this concern for you know preserving and you know and transmitting the the traditions that they you know they're the recipients of and the custodians of so you're right when did those traditions emerge and and for what purpose did they emerge? Was it just that these were the stories we selected or was that, that this was the role we played in, in shaping the stories sort of in a, you know, in a fluid sort of way? Yeah. I think that's a, it's an interesting question. One of the things I, you and I have talked about this a little bit, but one of the things I, I really like about the, um, sort of pseudo maximalist, you know, high view of, of things is that I think it takes very seriously um, the high value that Jesus places on his female followers. Mm -hmm. And Jesus says to the woman at the well, you know, I will give you streams of living water. And he says to the Syrophoenician woman, great is your faith. And he says to the woman uh, with the issue of blood that your faith has made you well. 
and he honors women most notably in that Mary Magdalene and his female followers are the first witnesses to the resurrection. And I think that's the most pro-woman, you know, statement and declaration in any historical text. Now, I'm not a historian and I haven't read that many historical texts, but of the few that I've read, it's it's pretty dramatic. It's pretty striking. And so, and and we know that that was, of course, you know, that was replicated in the um, in the praxis of the of the early church in the first century church. That um, so is it that this is just something they're retrojecting onto Jesus? Eh, okay, fair enough. But I, you know, wanting it to be true doesn't make it true. I get that, but I I just find the person of Jesus is. Um, is a you know is a very egalitarian person and if that's not true if the witness if the you know if there was no empty tomb and if there was no mary magdalene at the tomb it feels like a weird thing to have made up like why did they why did they put that kind of thing in there so you know anyway that not to get into apologetics land but just like you know like these are the, some of the I call them biases or whatever you like, but but I think that it's these are some of the things I like about the the gospel text and that I like about putting some of the female followers and you know Jesus mother herself in as eyewitnesses in the game. It sort of it honors their contribution to the process. If indeed they actually they they made a contribution at some level, what we could debate about <laughs> when that happened and you know and who changed it and when and why, but um, you know I, I think the game is at least trying to uh, respect and, and celebrate those contributions because it's really an important part of the story and about the first century church. I think you know a lot of my doctoral work was actually on um, the state of women in early Christianity. And uh, so, of course, that's a that's a topic that I I have a lot of uh, stances on. And and you're right that I would agree. You know, it, this is very interesting because I feel like this is one of those places where the conversation begins to break down, because one of the criteria that I I think most scholars would use for ascertaining, um, you know, what what is something that we could consider an absolutely genuine utterance of Jesus versus something that maybe is transformed later is, is exactly how odd it is, how peculiar it is. Um, and so Jesus being that egalitarian in, in a society that was not egalitarian to the point that Roman women were not given first names, um, in most cases, and then to have, uh, that tradition carried on by Paul where, you know, when we're looking at it from our modern perspective, Paul seems very backward. Um, but when you read it through the lens of his culture, when Paul is telling people, um, yes, women honor and be subservient to your husbands, but husbands love your wife as yourself, that that's actually a very radical uh, statement oh, yeah. in his in his time. Yeah. Um, so I am very interested in the in that tradition, for example, in part because it is so peculiar. Um, but where, where things would fall apart, um, for me are more questions of what is the nature of his divinity? Um, what is, uh, what are the goals that he's espousing? What is the essence of his message? Mm -hmm. Um, what are those tradents? Um, what are they preserving or not preserving? 
um, for instance, I tend to view uh, there being a very early conflict. Um, even just from the epistles of Paul, we know that there are uh, there are already different Christianizing traditions. Sure. And and conflict is uh, nothing breeds orthodoxy like conflict. And so this idea that very early on that people are having to create very definite and politically motivated ideas about who Jesus was, uh, that, that, that can the text be preserved? Can, can the utterances of Jesus be preserved when even the eyewitnesses are on the defensive? Um, questions like that, I think, are, are things that unfortunately go missing uh, too often because we bring so much baggage uh to the discussion yeah yeah for sure and that uh, yeah and that gets us off into the other bauckham stuff and hurtado and you know james dunn and some of this other kind of you know when did christology you know become high and uh you know um i recall a a story where larry hurtado said i was at this dinner with these three other scholars and you know, I can't remember who they were. So the story's not as funny as it could be. But anyway, no one knows who these people are anyway. But he <laughs> he says, you know, I proposed a toast to early high Christology. And two of us drank to that early high Christology. And then, you know, the next guy proposed a toast to high Christology. And we all drank a toast to that. And then the fourth guy proposed a toast to Christology. So, you know, it's just like, the, <laughs> these are matters that specialists can't, you know, can't agree on. So it's not my place to have much of an opinion on them. I just, I, I find them very interesting. Um, you, you, you and, and Cole raise an interesting point that maybe, uh, do you want to come back to about the, uh, about the Romans? Um, yeah. It was part of the design at one time. There was, you know, we're we're taking the view that this is happening uh, in the 60s AD or so, or at least it could have. And so the persecutions of Nero are in full swing. So there were a couple of mechanics that that brought that about. There were like region cards. The board was divided up into different regions, and the region cards represented sort of like knowing that churches secret handshake or knowing that region because asking around about Jesus, talking about him in public was a dangerous thing. And so you acquire these cards through a couple of means, which then, you know, give you access to better actions or, um, you know, sort of the, you can move faster because you sort of know who you need to get to and, and where they are, that kind of thing. And then there mm -hmm. was another piece where um, at the, in, in this game, in the final game, the, uh, one eyewitness dies every turn inescapably. In the previous version, there was um, an action selection system where instead of just spending your action tokens, you threw them into a cup and they were color coded. So different actions, you know, were paid for with different color cubes. And then you pull out the cubes and put them on the corresponding track. So the more you're interviewing eyewitnesses, the more the eyewitness track fills up and the more witnesses die. And the more tradition actions you're taking, the more the Romans jump in and trigger tradition events and they're suppressing traditions and they get thrown into the fire, metaphorically. Mm -hmm. The more you're traveling, the more the Romans are aware of your movements and they start setting up roadblocks. And so the game progressively gets more and more difficult um, 
because the board gets more and more difficult. And it was the work of a couple of years to have the board just not kill you to the point where the game couldn't even be played anymore. <laughs> so it was kind of like we need to time things exactly right so that the game ends just as the board is unbearably hard. But, you know, but you still feel the heat, you know, along the way. And it worked really well. And everyone said after we really got it perfect, like, this is all fine, but it, what does this have to do with this text that I'm supposedly writing? It, mm -hmm. It's distracting me from the stuff you're telling me by the scoring system that I'm supposed to be thinking about. Um, you're making me think about all this other stuff and it's fun. It's, it's got, you know, some real historical flavor to it. Um, but ultimately it's a distraction from, you know, the, the Bible writing stuff, which is hard enough as it is. So it's like, ah, uh, it was painful, but yeah, it's, you know, that, that stuff all kind of ended up on the cutting room floor. So maybe in a director's cut someday, I, I don't know. I don't anticipate that, but, but that's, <laughs> that's where all that went. So yeah, for sure. The, the, the influence of Rome was, uh, was definitely part of the game at one time, but it was omitted for, um, you know, gameplay reasons, I guess. So you include a couple of things that I find very interesting where, you, you know, we've already mentioned inclusio, um, but you have all of these literary devices and you also have these motifs. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about what those represent and why you chose to include those in the game? Yeah. So the literary devices are just, again, this is from my reading of, you know, Burridge's book and a couple others, but kind of that the gospels are not just these slapdash collections of stories thrown hastily together, um, that they're the product of some um, composition and that specifically that they are literary texts like, you know, the Greco-Roman Bioi, you know, the Greco-Roman biographies that they are, mm -hmm. um, you know, that they're trying to tell a pleasing literary account. It's like a, a night's entertainment in the ancient world, right? To listen to one of these stories. They're the right length for us to get together. And one of us is going to read this and it's going to be movie length and we're going to have a great time hearing this great story. So it's got to be good. And so the literary devices were just things that I grabbed a hold of as a couple of things that came out of these books as, you know, things that are present in some of these texts. And, you know, chronology is the easiest one, putting the stories in order. But as we've talked about, you abandon that pretty early on as a, as a gospel writer in this game. Um, inclusio is one. There's a thing called chiasm, which we've talked about, which is really more of a, a sort of a construct that's used for aid of memorization, but we, we sort of just shoehorned it in as a set of cards that have like an ABBBA or ABBA structure to them. And then there's emphasis, a recurring idea. So what are the recurring ideas that come up in the Gospels? What do we see over and over again? The five that I picked are the ones that jumped out at me, but I think there are other ones, but um, there is just a straight biography. There's some stuff that's in there just to tell you what Jesus was doing and, and when and why and where. Um, there is um, compassion, the idea of um, Jesus being a healer, Jesus being a friend, Jesus being kind to people, especially pe marginalized people, people that, the, that society hated. Jesus is kind and welcoming to those people. There is the um, conflict with the religious elites. He's constantly at odds with the religious elites. Everything he does makes them angry. Oh, you healed that guy, but it was on the Sabbath. You're not supposed to do that. Or you said this thing and it made us really upset. There's just, it's, it's 
throughout the, all of the Gospels, there's this discord between uh, Jesus and the religious leaders. So that's one of them. One is the um, cost of discipleship, that following Jesus is not easy. And he talks about that at length, that like, look, what you guys are signing up for, um, you know, is going to keep going after I'm gone. And, and it's, it's going to be a hard life. And, you know, the, obviously the Christian story is that all the disciples were martyred except John. So, um, you know, whether that's really what happened, that's certainly congruent with what Jesus is talking about. And then the last one is uh, the coming kingdom of God, which Jesus talks about a lot. And you could say that's sort of his apocalyptic uh, bent, but, you know, talking about um, the day of the Lord, you know, the, the, the visitation of, of God upon earth and, you know, and his own and Jesus own return after the resurrection, which hasn't yet happened, of course, at the time that he's saying this, but, you know, he's talking about it as a, as a future event that the writers take seriously. So those were the four, five motifs I picked. Were they the right five? I don't know, but again, I could find, you know, that they supported the cards, the, the story cards that I had chosen. So, um, there was enough of them that they fit into, uh, a deck of cards that could make a playable game. Did, what did I leave out? What are, what's some of the, <laughs> what's some of the important stuff that, that should have gotten in there, I guess. I, I don't know. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> is there, is there, is there anything that you feel you cut out? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. the hard question, isn't it? Yeah. 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 No, I think, I, I think the one motif is the, you know, I, I think the, just what we've just been talking about is, is particularly Jesus, relationship to his female followers and and to women in general. I don't know if that's exactly a motif, but I think it's something that is uh, recurrent that that certainly comes through and is noteworthy maybe to the modern eye. But, um, you know, yeah, I think there I think there are things like that that are, um, you know, some of the there are probably patterns in some of the things that he said that, uh, you know, could could probably be motifs. Some of them are more but, you know, some of them are sort of um, you know, co- rhetorical constructs. They're not so much groupings of the stories, but just the way that the gospels depict him as speaking, you know, that uh, verily I say unto you, blah, 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 and stuff like that. And referring, yeah. referring to himself as the son of man, and no one quite knows where that came from or what that's all about, you know? Right. There are things right. like that that I think are, are motifs, um, but maybe didn't make sense as as part of the game, or I couldn't figure out how to, gamify them in any case. I, I guess the one, and you already mentioned this, was as one friend uh, puts it, that, that the game misses out on Jesus as the uh, social justice necromancer. <laughs> okay, yeah. The, the idea of, you know, a, a staunch reformer, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah, well, no, that's, I, yeah, I think a lot of that is is encapsulated in the, you know, in the recurring conflict with the religious leaders, which is just you know, you guys think all of these things and my gosh, have you completely missed the point on all of them, you know? Um, and, and he even says that to his own followers, if we carry forward into the book of Acts and whatever, you know, you know, with the, the vision of, uh, that Peter has of the, uh, you know, unclean food and, and the clear implication of that this is, you know, that this is not just a, a Jewish thing. This is going to be a Gentile thing as well. And, and of course that's post-resurrection, you know, it's, it's not part of the gospels, but 
Um, I think it's it's compatible with things that the the gospels anticipate. Um, but I, you know, but that, anyway, that's obviously a source of extreme um, historical debate. I suppose is exactly how Jewish was, <laughs> you know, was the Jesus movement? How right, right. Greco-Roman was it, and when, and in what ways is that is the inflection point? I guess one of my early professors. Um, was determined to convince us that um, that the Jesus story was was just a retelling of the Hercules story, um, huh, okay. and, and he he drew all these parallels. And this is something that um, this professor is not a real scholar; he was just finishing his grad work. Um, and it's there are there are many parallels. But as as uh, as we pointed out in that class right away, the the more interesting things in that story are the uh, the non parallels or the differences. Yeah, because uh, Jesus didn't bench press his way off the cross. Right. Or like <laughs> right. Um, right. So so it sounds like you know you've used these motifs, but but you certainly don't want anyone to go through and and glance at one of the cards and say, well well this card should also have footprints. <laughs> yeah. um, so what does that say about perhaps, uh, have, have you considered at all the limitations of the story that you're presenting to your players or the ways that maybe it could be misread? I'm not sure. Um, I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm sure that will be the case. It, it'll be interesting. I'm just very interested to see what people's reactions are. And, you know, it's it's one of these things where you know, you know, I've read your review with great interest. And I felt like a lot of the things that you wrote about, like, wow, I'm not really that doesn't seem like what I had in mind or, or I wouldn't have thought of that. Or, you know, this episode that you talk about in your own life, it's like, wow, that's very fascinating to me how you make a connection between that and and this game. So I think there's there's a lot of stuff where I, I suspect people will. Um, you know, will get a lot out of playing the game and thinking about how it resonates with their own experience, their own faith journey or lack thereof, their own interactions with these texts or lack thereof. Um, I had one player comment on Twitter, like, I don't know much about these stories, but I felt like I was a first century journalist hassling people and shaking them down for information. I, that was one of the comments <laughs> right. I've ever heard. That was like, that that's great. Even not knowing much about these stories, it it totally came through for you what you were doing. I, I love that. But so yeah, so I'm I'm very interested to hear what people say. I think one of the things you you touch on that I really like, um, and, and appreciate your having said is how difficult the deck is. It's um, your the game is really. <sighs> At a game mechanical level, there's a lot of risk management in what you're doing. I'm going to take this story now, and I'm going to put it here, and I'm going to put this other story here, and I hope I'm going to find something that fits in between these two. But I'm not sure if there, you know, if I'm going to get that, and I'm not sure if that card even exists. And I've played this game a zillion, not a zillion, but a lot of times, and I still do that myself. I haven't memorized the deck yet. It's too hard. There's too much in there. So I yeah. hope, it, it, I think that, will be a source of frustration for some people who are looking for, you know, an, uh, an easy, um, more familiar idea of set collection of just, I need three diamonds in a row and that kind of thing. There is that kind of stuff, but the deck is really weird. 
And, um, and I think that's part of the game is every time you play, you're seeing it in a different order. You know, yes, of course, the resurrection is always the, the same card and everything, but the, the order in which the stories come out, um, you know, changes every time. And then your role in putting them into the gospels you're writing, um, you know, changes based on the needs of your uh, thematic situation and your current gospel situation. So, um, so I hope people will look at the deck that way and, and not necessarily, I, I hope they won't get bogged down in fact checking it too much. Um, you know, <laughs> right. just not, not to say that that's inappropriate, but just to say that, you know, there, there, I think there's more fun to be had by grappling with the, um, the messiness of the deck and, and, you know, and, and whether that feels thematically reasonable to you than, than to say this card, oh my gosh, why, why is this card in here? Or, or this story's got it all wrong. Mary Magdalene wasn't present for that. That's totally absurd, you know? You know, I, I am a little uh, miffed just at a personal level, Jeff, because my, one of my favorite stories um, is the temptation. And so (laughs) when, whenever I find the temptation and it has no eyewitnesses and it has only one motif. I'm just going, well, dang it. I, I'm not going to take the temptation. Yeah. Why, did I, why would anyone include the temptation? Yeah. It's a, it's a great story, but it's not a great card. I don't know why that is. I guess they're, I, I, <laughs> I yeah, I don't have a great explanation or rationalization yeah, ju- for it. <laughs> d- defend, defend card two. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, it's definitely the worst one. Um, but yeah, it's kind of this weird text where it's like, you know, the, um, yeah, the person who draws that suit has one kind of bad card. Um, they have the resurrection, which is one kind of really good card and a couple others that are, that are nice, but yeah, it's, why is this card bad? Why don't we just artificially or not artificially, but why didn't we make up some witnesses for this? Well, that's, you know, I suppose I could have just left the card out and done something, put something else in there. But it's such a well, great actually, story. I, I don't know. It's you're you're let, you're let thinking the exact uh, kinds of things that, as a designer, you you grapple with. Well, let me defend. Oh, it. please, um, please. Do. Actually, <laughs> oh, one of the things I I love that you have permitted um, your cards to have that sort of texture. You know, um, I I think that balance is overrated. Yeah, and. Um, I love the idea that you can go into this deck and as you are, as you pointed out, you know, you're not trying to just make set collection where you're finding diamonds or whatever. Um, one thing I mentioned in my review that I think you've done really well, and I hope other people take a cue from is this idea of set collection where you are determining what your sets are, how they are evaluated. Um, you know, what's the impetus behind the sets that you're creating. And I love that, uh, a part of that is you have to have some cards that are very good and some that are bad. And rather than creating a, I think artificial is a good word that you used for it. it, Rather than creating an artificial balance, you just let some cards be good and you let some cards be bad. Mm -hmm. And, and that adds texture to the deck. Um, And it sometimes even creates situations where um, you might kind of be uh, compelled to take a card you don't want. Uh, Absolutely. And I I think in some cases, the follow mechanic sort of, you know, informs some of those decisions because it's like, am I going to take this card? It's not great for me, but I'll pick up a follow token. If this other player follows me, is that a wise thing to do? Am I at the point in the game where I really want that? What, you know, there, there are like 
layers of decision uh, that, you know, decision making that I think sometimes make you want to take a bad card. But yeah, sometimes you just, you know, sometimes it's it's like I have, um, you know, a couple of cards that are all late and I want to get a couple of cards that are low numbers and I go to Tarsus and pick four cards and pff, none of them are what I'm looking for. They're all like high number cards that would totally bust my chronology if I put them in. So, yeah. You know, sometimes you don't get what you would uh, what you would like to have. So, yeah, it's there's a lot of uh, of that kind of stuff that just yeah, you, it's making lemonade in in a lot of cases. Yeah, and I love games that give me a hard situation and have me make lemonade. Um, now, one thing I didn't put in my review, I di I didn't want it to come across the wrong way, but you mentioned that maybe you'll pick a card that you don't want because you'll get followers. One thing I didn't put in my review is that I love how in a way that's the game's economic concern. That's the starving writer who <laughs> has to shill. Yeah. <laughs> I had not thought about it that way. I like that very much. <laughs> where where you're going, well, I could write I could write the great American novel or I could write the Godfather and make money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And some and it's and and it's also with the, you know, do I take the strong action, which is better but it means everyone's going to get to, you know, oh, everyone's going to totally rip me off now because I've written this blockbuster versus if I write a, you know, sort of the serialization version of the story and like in our next installment, here's, you know, here's yeah. this chapter. But if people copy that, then I'm going to get paid for it because they want to put it in their newspaper or whatever. So, yeah, right. there's there's all of that kind of stuff that that sort of you can play with as uh, as the meta narrative that comes out in in playing the game, which I think is a lot of fun. So you know, you've mentioned uh, that some aspects. Of, I I never asked this, but you mentioned that some aspects of my review uh, maybe surprised you, or or perhaps even hopefully that you disagreed with. Uh, what did I get wrong, Jeff? Um, I want to be careful here. I as a game designer, I think what I get to say about the game is the game itself, and I think it's even a little bit cheeky that i wrote a historical <laughs> paper about the game um but it, you know but whatever I, I i hoped that that would at least be informative and give people some background on what i was thinking of i hate to I, I am not going to tell any reviewer that they're wrong that i disagree with them your reaction is 100 percent valid you and everybody else who reacts to the game because it's a reflection <laughs> of your playing the game with that out of the way <laughs> the thing that surprised me um i guess i would say is that you use the word certitude um, which I, which you said you bristle at that kind of thing. And I, I guess I, I think, I hope in, in this conversation, um, you know, that you at least hear where I'm coming from. Maybe you still think, oh yeah, certitude was exactly the right word. That's totally fine. Um, but I, I just, that word in particular, I thought like, really, am I really coming across as, you know, as uh, in a, uh, you know, I've got the answer kind of way. So I, I wasn't sure if I was misunderstanding your use of that word or if I was reacting to it on a visceral level as opposed to a thoughtful level. But I think when I reread my article and reread your article, it's like, okay, I, I, I think I see what he's getting at. And okay, fair enough. And I, you know, um, I could have softened some things. I could have been more like, this is possible. I could have been more, this is plausible. Um, you know, so yeah. So I, I, I don't think you were wrong to say that, but that's just, that was, that was the reaction I had to that particular word. But 
Well, I'm I'm completely open to being wrong. Well, you know, when I, if I if I write in the re- review, uh, you know, Jeff Warrender is a doo doo head. I feel like I'm that that is not necessarily a reflection of my uh, personal experience. It's not inaccurate, but anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, uh, as as I wrote in the uh, in the text of the review, um, I, I I feel like so many people. Um, Coming coming into this game, having played um, Amabelle Holland's Nicaea, where I feel like this is a game that is uh, critiquing uh, Christianity, but ends up coming across very affectionate, uh, maybe even unintentionally affectionate. Um, you know, despite having a thesis that's very caustic, you know, that... It's clearly an act of crit- criticism. It clearly doesn't think much of uh, ecclesiastical councils, and yet it still comes across in, in a very loving way. Um, and and in a sense, I felt like your game almost did the opposite. Um, and and I don't mean this as a, a negative thing at all. Where it comes across uh, very positive, but in the process, I think makes a point that. Um, certain uh, pastors who I have interacted with would absolutely consider it dismissive or heretical or too secular or postmodern or whatever the the scare word is that we're going to use. Sure. Um, you know, my, my criticism isn't so much that the game reflects that certitude, but that the entirety of the Christian tradition that I've interacted with, including my own, um, absolutely including my own, um, suffers from that certitude. And looking at this game as a cultural artifact, as a note in that, I think it's a very difficult game to pin down um, because <laughs> yeah. you, you you make this argument uh, that the eyewitnesses are alive and being interviewed, um, you know, even, even you name your dates, uh, you know, that maybe some of these things were written uh, in the year 60, which, um, you know, the, the, the secular scholarly consensus places it absolute earliest after 70. Yeah, sure. Um, right. And that's right. because of the d- destruction yeah, of Jerusalem. Of yeah. And um, that precludes any possibility of, say, prophecy being real. Yeah. And, and there's a reason that a secular scholar would go that way. And it's because if we assume that one prophecy is real, then we have to grant the same concession to every text ever written. Yeah. Um, that it, it has the possibility of its uh, prophecies being real. Um, so, so that is not so much a uh, an argument that's made to say that Christianity can't ever be true or it can't have true convictions or it can't have true prophecies or divinity. It's more that that can't be admitted as evidence. Right. Um, and so looking at, at these religious traditions where I, I have personally suffered some trauma at the hands of religious traditions, my own included. Um, and then you have this game where it has this note that can contribute to that certainty while also contributing kind of to a little more uh, hesitance or uncertainty. I, I find it a remarkably tricky game. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's been reflected in some other people. You know, I've been chatting with Cole Worley. He also finds it a uh, multi-layered and complex game. And, and, but that's one of the things I love about it, Jeff. And so I hope you don't take that as a, as a note of negativity. Um, in my own mind, my review was 
was wildly positive. Oh yeah, oh, for sure, for sure. Yeah, no, that's right. And uh, yeah, I was like, you know, what uh, I asked my wife, you know, hey, what do you, what do you think about this review? She's like, wow, what a what a great and favorable review. That's that's so great that, you know, Dan got the game and and really saw what you were trying to do. And I was like, yeah, I mean, that's that's my feeling as well. I think the the thing about the the certitude piece is just what I, you know, whatever the game is saying and whatever I'm saying through the game. I, I 100% agree with you that there is so much um, suppression of thought that happens in a lot of Christian circles and that kids who are intellectually engaged have questions, they have doubts, and the role of the church and especially the clergy and the eldership and whoever all ought to be to say that is totally fine, let's you know, think through this. Let's try to get the answers. Maybe we don't know the answer right now, but you're not wrong to be thinking about these things. Instead, what kids hear and adults is don't think, just believe, have faith or whatever. And, you know, I, I feel really fortunate uh, it, that in this little Dutch Reformed church that I was sort of a Easter lily and Christmas poinsettia for, that the thing my pastor said that has stuck with me for my whole life is that faith is knowledge and trust. And I feel like that has really endorsed my pursuit of, you know, reading what scholarly uh, opinions are about these texts, even if they veer into things that are uncomfortable or even heretical, as you say, like there's no harm in hearing what people have to say and thinking about it and weighing it. And, but also I think there's not there's no harm in trust and saying, look, we don't know what happened in the first century. We can't know. It's inaccessible to us. There's no 100% certainty to be had. It's just not possible. Um, what is which way are we going to jump? You know, you maybe you don't have to make a decision, or maybe you do. But if you, but are you crazy to make this decision to say, I believe this stuff based on you know what I am able to glean. Are you crazy to say, I don't believe this stuff based on what I'm able to glean? You know, what is, what is a reasonable, what is a warranted position? So I think that's really my view on faith. And, and so I, I myself think, as you say, that, that, that kind of certitude um, can indeed be very um, destructive Um and, um, and, and yeah, so to the extent that anyone reads the game and says, this is the one and only way to think about this game and this history and this subject, um, you know, I, I hope everyone who's hearing this at least will be encouraged that I and everybody else should be saying, think these things through, read stuff, hear what people have to say, um, grapple with it. There's, there's lots of good, smart people thinking lots of good, smart things. So, you know, more of that. I say. Well, Jeff, I, I am so grateful that you uh, have joined me today. Um, now, just just as we depart, is there anything else you'd like to leave us with? Is there What would you hope somebody gets out of the acts of the evangelists if they happen to sit down and play it? Um, more than anything, it's, it's a game. It's a play thing. Games live in the realm of play. That doesn't mean they can't say interesting and important things, but I, I hope people will get together and have a good time in each other's company. And um, that to me is the best thing about gaming is having fun with other people. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the 
fellowship of of humans, you know, interacting together. So more than anything else, that is what I hope for this game and all of my games. Um, if any anybody takes anything else away from it, uh, like the the great stuff that you had to write, I'm just completely delighted by that. Um, and you know, I I I definitely appreciate it. And and yeah, please say what you think at your at your site at social media at board game geek or whatever. I'm, I'm definitely interested to hear what people, uh, how people react as they're thinking through and playing the game. It's, it's been fun so far and yeah, looking forward to more. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah. Thank you for having me, Dan. It's been great. 